Welcome, everybody, to the IT Career Guide Coaching Show. I'm Daryl Wilkerson, and today is episode 23, a special Veterans Day episode entitled Sacrifice. Now, before I get started, as always, please feel free to reach out to me with anything that's challenging you with your IT career or in your current leadership role. Now, what I wanted to do is take today being Veterans Day, a very special time for me being a veteran. I want to talk about my experience as well as what it means to sacrifice and the lessons that I've taken away that can actually translate to your career. So what does Veterans Day mean to me? It's about honoring those who have sacrificed for their country. Now you hear that a lot and people take that for granted. Right? I believe a lot of people take that for granted as if it's a an obligation or just something nice to do for somebody. I want you to think truly think about sacrifice, what it really means. I'm going to get to that through this story. What does Veterans Day mean to me or my experience in the United States Air Force? I joined the U.S. Air Force in the summer of 1991 and shipped out on February of 1992. This was right at the end of the Operation Desert Storm and during Desert Shield. I'd been married for a year and a half and had a seven-month-old daughter when I went into basic training. Now, my why of joining was threefold. I wanted to further my professional life, <laughs> get away from family pressures and all that being a newlywed, and do something that I believed in, supporting my country. It was an exciting time, a proud time, and even a sad time. Now, I personally was so excited about the new opportunities and the unknown. My friends and family were proud of what I was doing. However, there were those who were sad and hurt for me taking away their granddaughter or going away for the first time. I was somewhat conscious of all that, but the excitement of embarking on something new overrode everything else. Professionally, I thought I wanted to be a software developer. I knew that was where the industry was going, and there was this wild intangible about creating something out of absolutely nothing, which just fascinated me. However, (laughs) my ASVAB scores were not good enough, and I had to settle for being a communications computer operator. A 491X1 at the time. It's been reclassified a few times since then, but it's communications computer operator. I know it's also been retitled. Basically, mainframe operator and someone, a glorified mail clerk handling classified information. It was a bit humbling for me and definitely disappointing, but I knew it was a foot in the door and figured I would work my way up, and I did. This is where preparation met opportunity. So just because you're getting off to a start that's much lower than what you thought or what you expected, don't think it will not fruition into something much greater. After basic training at Lackland Air Force Base, I was sent to Keesler Air Force Base in Biloxi, Mississippi, where I was training on the oldest and most obsolete things known to communications. Actually, I was mostly trained on how to read the Joint Armed Forces publications, or what we call the JAF pubs, and the messaging formats. This is so how we could route classified material to the right people. You route a top-secret document to the wrong place, and you're in trouble. So you better know what you're doing. So I could write an encoded message in about 60 seconds. So my typing skills came in handy from all that time I spent on that Apple IIc at home when I was a kid. But other than that, I was indoctrinated in the world of security. In order to handle the classified messages, I was to get my top-secret PSYOP clearance. That took about a year for all the investigations and things to occur. After 11 weeks at Keesler, I was assigned my permanent duty station at Seymour Johnson Air Force Base in Goldsboro, North Carolina. My wife and I loaded up everything we owned into the back of a pickup, put our daughter in the car seat before seatbelts, by, by the way, for adults were law, and left Oklahoma for a new beginning in the Air Force. Work was great. The people I came in contact with, for the most part, were top-notch. The Air Force definitely had a layer of fat within their NCO and junior office ranks, like most organizations, but I was determined to crush it. 
I was dedicated to my job of handling classified information and operating the base level computer system, which was mainly Unisys 2200 400 mainframe. About six months later into that job, I felt as if I mastered everything about it and started venturing into other things, mostly on my own. My supervisors and others around let me start digging into their jobs and other responsibilities. I had a voracious appetite to learn how everything worked and found that I had a special talent at solving problems and fixing things. In fact, one of my proudest moments was when I received a plaque from my co-workers and management whenever I separated the Air Force. It stated, if I can't fix it, it ain't broke, which told me a lot how they thought about me and my abilities for troubleshooting and fixing problems. Time went on. I was promoted to an applications administrator on the mainframe. I also was responsible for keeping the circuits that came into the base for data processing up and working. Now, there's a fork in the road. So all this led into the opportunity I've been waiting for. In the fall of 1993, the Air Force had a huge project to consolidate all of their mainframes into the regional processing centers. And since I had shown exemplary performance and initiative, they gave me the option to either become a systems administrator or a database administrator. <laughs> I had some idea what a systems admin did, but I had no idea what a DBA was supposed to do. The base's technical lead, Technical Sergeant Kuperian, explained that as a systems admin, I would learn things like Unix, networking, and TCPIP. I actually had to ask what TCPIP was. He started to explain to me, but he just decided it wasn't worth his time. It just simply opened more and more questions. So he just skipped right to tell me what a DBA did. Well, since the DBA was supposed to spend all their time with ComSec, which was communication security on base, which from my viewpoint was a bunch of paper pushing, I decided to go down the sysadmin route. And it was a great decision for me. It's one of those times, those forks in the road that determines where your path in life leads. You need to be aware of those moments. When you come to that fork in the road and you're given a choice, weigh it carefully. Keep in mind... Where do you want to be at the end of the path, and will that help you get there? Which one's the best opportunity? Well, Langley Air Force Base, our MAGCOM, or Major Command of the Air Combat Command, sent us four AT&T 3B2 GRC mini computers, or at least parts of them. None were complete, but they did send with them a library of these red manuals that were still wrapped in plastic. Later, I found out that those were the red books, the famous AT&T red books that explained everything top to bottom about all, about their Unix system. It was a gold mine. I was told to make something out of those four parts boxes, basically. So I got to reading and got to piecing things together. While I was figuring this out, the Air Force put on a regional training program from this company called Cisco. Well, <laughs> where I was told I would learn about what TCP IP meant. So I was finally going to find out what that really meant. And I did. Now, what an awesome opportunity to learn that was. All the while, I was still acting as a mainframe admin communications computer operator and going to college full-time while trying my best to be a dad and a husband. By this time, our son had been born. I could go on for a lot longer, but you get the picture. My career was in full blast as an IT professional and wasn't even aware of it. I just wanted to learn as much as possible and do the best job I could do. Overall, joining the military was the best professional decision I had ever made in my life. I am extremely proud of what I did and would still be serving today if I could. Now, the lessons learned from sacrifice here. For me, sacrifice meant time away from my family. For an example, after shipping out to basic and having to say goodbye to my wife and daughter, whom I haven't spent one day away from up to that point, I was focused on what I had to do and a little scared of the unknown. 
So I didn't even think about being away from them. What I didn't account for was how much I would miss my family. After the eight short weeks at basic, my wife and daughter came to visit me prior to shipping out to Keesler. I recall sitting in the visitor's meeting hall and my wife placing my daughter on the table to crawl to me. She looked at me, my daughter, as if I was a total stranger and went right back to my wife. My daughter had forgotten who I was in just those short eight weeks. I was heartbroken. I had to make the most of it in those short few hours before shipping out to Keesler, so I used that time to get reacquainted with my family. That's just eight short weeks, but it had a great impression on me. From that point forward, I made decisions based on that. Those decisions were always rooted in, is this best for my family, for me and my family? I missed out a lot by making by using that as my decision, but I also maintain my family throughout all these years, 28 years now plus, and I have a strong family. So going on, do, the second thing I learned about sacrifice was doing all that I had done while in the Air Force, the TDYs, fulfilling the requirements of the job, took me away from my family, put a great strain on, our, on my marriage. Always being gone, my wife stuck in a strange place with the kids, feeling like she was all alone. You have to think about the sacrifice isn't just those who were, who were in the active duty, but you also have to think about the dependents, the families of those who are serving. They are sacrificing perhaps even greater. In fact, that's what led me to get out of the military was my family. I dearly loved the life. I could have spent the rest of my career, the rest of my professional career, serving in the Air Force. But due to that strain on my family, who I always put first, I knew if I stayed in the military, the military would have to come first. It was the oath. But I knew my family had to come first in my heart. So I had to do what was right for me, the service, and my family. And it was to get out. And I did. The returns, that leads me to the returns, what I got out of being in the military. Despite my sacrifices, which were very few compared to our fighting men and women in the other services, the military had given me a set of skills that directly translated to the public sector, and most of all, the pride of serving my country. Nothing can nor will ever take away that pride. Being in a support role, I often felt guilty for not doing more, sacrificing more. I had volunteer opportunities to go to the desert, but didn't. I wanted to do things such as becoming a pararescuer. I mean, doesn't serving your country mean to put your life on the line? Well, because I had a family... The military wouldn't let me do that. They put me where it was safe, but where they still needed me to support those who were on the front line. Serving your country means to do the things your country asks of you without expecting anything in return. That's true about serving at any level or anything in the military or out of the military. Now, that was the most important thing I got out of being in the military, the pride, this self-fulfillment of knowing that I have served my country and my people. So be proud of serving. Continue to serve whether or not you're in the military or not. There are countless ways to do so. You just have to be willing to sacrifice your time. So what am I doing now as part of that sacrifice? Just recently, I've participated in a charitable organization called Beyond Brotherhood based out of Davis, Oklahoma. I went on a what they call a an event called Ruck 22, where I went on a 22-mile hike, uh, loaded down with 22 pounds plus water and, and other things. My base weight was 22 pounds. And I also got to go zip lining to raise more money uh, for Beyond Brotherhood. So all this takes time, but it allows me to spend time with my family. So the hike and the zip lining I spent with people who I care about and an organization I'm going to continue giving to because what, what does Beyond Brotherhood do? Beyond Brotherhood and there's many organizations just like this, supports the families of those who have sacrificed or are still sacrificing and supporting those who have come over with PTSD and who need help. The 22, the Ruck 22 uh, part of this was all about, you know, the 22 service members who take their life every day. And the zip lining at, at the, uh, <laughs> down in Davis, Oklahoma, 
was just to raise money for the local families to buy bread, put clothes on their children's backs. It's just to help out. So you can, too, participate in these types of charities to help those who have served us. Now, I'm going to conclude this episode with a story. Now, this story has nothing to do with IT, and I know, or even anybody's career, but it has to do with sacrifice. If you are suffering today, there are others out there who understand and are wanting to help. As part of the Veterans Day special edition, I thought it would be appropriate to share this person's story uh, with you all, just so we can learn to appreciate what others have given for us. This story is by Chaplain Major Carlos C. Huerta of the U.S. Army. This is a story from the Army.mil website dated April of 2012 from Fort Benning, Georgia. And I quote, My name is Huerta. I am an American soldier and I have PTSD. I refused to admit it to myself even when the Army doctors told me I had it in 2004. I refused to talk to anyone about it even when Army health professionals told me I needed to in 2005. I was afraid how Army leadership would react if I had that on my record. I was a soldier. I was tough. I just needed to rub the patch and drive on. And drive on I did, until one day in September 2010, five years after I'd last left the battlefield. I don't know what the trigger was. Maybe it was the young soldier, a mother of two who was just redeployed, who I watched cut down after she hanged herself, weeks after returning from the battle earlier. Maybe it was the faces of the children I see on all the doors I knocked on to tell them their father or mother was not coming home. Maybe it was because it was the same time of year when my uniform was covered with the blood and brains of a six-year-old Iraqi child who was caught in an IED during Ramadan. I don't know what the trigger was, but it hit me hard. I went home one evening, and all of a sudden, I felt a tightness in my chest. It was hard to breathe. I felt closed in and panicky. I bolted out of bed thinking I was dying. I paced the room in the dark for hours before I exhausted myself. I almost went to the ER that night, but the soldier in me said to stick it out. The morning came and it hit again. A panic. A fear of being closed off. Claustrophobia and pains in the chest. thought maybe I was having a heart attack. And if I was, I needed to see a doctor. A heart attack was honorable. PTSD was not. I went to sick call, and they ordered a battery of tests to exclude any heart condition. When my heart was cleared, the doctors recommended I see someone in CHMS. I thought to myself, I wasn't crazy. Why do I need to see them? If I see them, I know the big army will find out and tag me as broken. I went home that night, and the same thing happened. I knew I could not live like this, so I talked off the record to someone in mental health. They looked at my records and after talking with me said I had PTSD. They said there was probably some trigger that set it off. I did not want to believe it, but I knew that I needed something or I would face the same thing again that evening. I then officially saw them and was prescribed some psychotropic medication to help with anxiety in order to help me function. I thought when I got off the battlefield that I could heal and place the war behind me. As a chaplain, I soon realized that I could not. Within weeks of getting back in 2004, I was knocking on doors telling families a husband, wife, a father or mother, a daughter or son was not coming home. In 2008, I knocked on a door to tell a family that their husband, a father of three, was lost to them. To this day, I can close my eyes and see the face of a teenage daughter who looked at me with hatred. She looked deep into my soul and said that she would never forget what I did to her and her family that day and turned away, too destroyed to even cry. And even though I was home, I never left the battlefield. I brought the war home and it took a toll on me. 
my family, wife, and children. I got to be good friends with Jim and Jack. (laughs) You may know them as Mr. Beam and Mr. Daniels. I did not want to get close to my new babies for fear I may get deployed again. A big piece of me wanted to go back to battle because the battlefield made sense. Coming home to emails, memorandums, and unit politics did not. I also knew that if I went back, a bigger piece of me did not want to come back home again. The home I came back to is not the one I left. My family was not the same. I was not the same. I felt that something important was stolen from me and there was nobody I could talk to about it. Nobody except the guys I was over there with. I would look for combat patches. Look for buddies to talk to. Look for the soldiers who went through what I went through and felt the same way I did. There were many of us. Our experiences were very different, but we had one thing in common. We felt different, but we were not crazy or have some defective genetic failing. It just was hard for us to come to terms with all the death, destruction, and pain we had participated in and witnessed. We were all reluctant about officially talking to someone. Even if we needed help, we would not go to it as we thought leadership would use that against us for assignments and promotions. We felt we were alone. We were trapped in our own memories, sometimes trying to ignore them and often not being able to. We watched as our suicide numbers went up and are still going up. The Army leadership has tried and is trying to change this trend and is having some success. I cannot say that a piece of me at one time did not wonder if the world, my family, would have been better off without me. For soldiers with PTSD, we often felt the very act of seeking help from a mental health professional could be information that could be used against us to target us and make us feel we were burdens to the system. I felt that way and was afraid to get the help I needed. I now fear that the problem may be made worse with the so-called discovery of a PTSD gene. If this data is used wrong or misinterpreted, those of us with PTSD now could be considered genetically dysfunctional. Instead of being a burden to the army, I ended up being a burden to the most important people in my life, my wife and children. Fearing being minimized as a soldier, I, like so many others, went underground. It seemed the very thing that leadership was using to try to help me actually worked against me. When I close my eyes at night, sometimes I still see myself picking up the body parts of my soldiers. I still see myself holding my soldiers as they die in my arms on the battlefield. I still see the blood of Iraqi children spattered all over my uniform as they take their last breaths due to no fault of their own. In the quiet moments of the day, when I am with my family, I see the faces of all the wives, children, husbands, mothers and fathers whose lives I destroyed with the notifications I made. My mind tells me that I did not cause their pain and grief, but my heart tells me otherwise. I know I can't change their pain, but I can change mine and the pain I inflicted on my family due to the war. Only a soldier understands that physically being home doesn't mean coming home. Coming home from battle seemed to be one of the easiest things to do. It seemed that you just got on a plane. After spending hours, weeks, and months getting help and talking to someone about my wounds, I am only beginning to understand how to come home. I am, in our army culture, what some would identify as a broken or deadwood soldier. I have no bullet holes to show my wounds. I will not get any medal that will recognize them. If I did, I would be afraid and ashamed to wear it in our present culture. As with so many of us, my wounds are the invisible kind, the type we bear in our souls. I am not ashamed of them. For me and and others like me, they are just as real as one that bleeds. I am getting help because I am tired of not being home. I am tired of being on the battlefield I brought back with me. 
It is time for me to come home. It is time for all of us to come home. My name is Huerta, and I am a wounded American soldier. And I am not ashamed of my wounds, and I have no genetic failing. I am proud of my service, and I am going home. Let's go home together. So that kind of, that story says it all about the sacrifice people made and what they are having to live with due to those sacrifices, all in serving us. So join a movement in your area. Support the troops and their families. Make this Veterans Day a day that you dedicate to others. So until next time, live life with a purpose.